This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Welcome to the first uh, healthcare session of this year's uh, ASA Convention. Uh, it's great to see such a nice turnout. Um, Today we're going to be uh, having a, starting off with quite a, an interesting topic in healthcare, which is provider profiling. And it's going to be presented by Njabula Dube. And uh, he's a, a consultant at Percept, uh, currently a master's candidate as well. And he'll be taking us through some of the, the nuances and the intricacies of one of the more technical um, and complicated parts of managed care and, and uh, uh, technical um, methodologies in, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the art of managed care and healthcare analytics. Um, and I think it does a, um, it's, it's one of those techniques that encapsulates the, the complexities of healthcare and how there's that conflict between the different providers and the stakeholders in the environment. So without further ado, Let's welcome Njabula onto the stage. Good morning, everyone. I'm Njabula, and I'm here with my colleague Shivani to tell you about a piece of work we did for one of our clients that reveals some fundamental flaws in how provider profiling currently works in South Africa. Before I start, uh, let me paint a picture that led to my standing in front of you and allow me to share what we discovered. One of our clients, a large provider of primary healthcare services in the country, approached us with a problem which, on the surface, seemed very easy to solve. So the scenario is that they receive multiple profiling reports from different healthcare funders at different points in time of the year and at different lags. So what this means is that some funders produce reports monthly, some quarterly, some half-yearly, and some annually. And the clients that they briefed to us was essentially that they wanted to find a way to compile all these different reports such that they only produce a single report to the GPs within their networks, so say every quarter. So when Shivani outlined this problem to me, my immediate thought was, ah, oh, I mean, that's a very simple problem to solve. I'm sure I can have a solution out in a couple of weeks. Boy, did I regret having that thought two days into the project. But in my defense, I plead ignorance because I did not know anything about provider profiling before I started working on this project. So if you're like me and don't know anything about provider profiling, fear not, because part of the agenda of today is my explaining to you all what provider profiling is and why funders profile doctors in the, in the private healthcare sector. Then I'm going to walk you through different examples of how providers actually profile doctors by giving you examples of methodologies that are used in practice. I'm then going to talk about how the recipients of these reports, i.e. the doctors, experience them, then end with some examples how we can improve the system. So, Provider profiling is a managed care technique that attempts to enable the comparison of healthcare funders uh, on various dimensions. These are usually the cost, quality of care, and uh, the service use. So you can, think of it, you can think of it as a rating system. So is GP1 more cost-effective than GP2? Does GP3 use more resources to treat the same conditions compared to GP4, etc.? So let me briefly explain as to why doctors usually have to profile GPs in the private sector. So, GPs are usually the first point of entry into the private healthcare sector in South Africa. 
They act as agents for their patients, and hence they are able to influence healthcare expenditure in two ways. The first one is through their own activities, such as diagnosing patients and providing treatments. And the second one is through the services and treatments they recommend, which includes referral to specialists and hospital-based treatments. However, it is important to keep in mind that a common feature in the South African healthcare system is that a non-trivial number of patients actually bypass GPs, self-referring directly to specialists. So this undermines the gatekeeping role that GPs can provide to the healthcare system. Essentially, the need for benchmarking is premised on the existence and variation in the cost and quality of care provided. According to, Abraham, uh, according to Abraham's um, Naidu and Charles, so benchmarking, i.e. profiling, provides the opportunity to understand the variation, to look for efficiencies, in order to make systematic improvements in doctor performance. So essentially, having this in mind, what this means is that the the reason why funders devote a lot of resources to profiling GPs is first to monitor and control the costs, the second one is to monitor the quality of care provided, and the third is to provide GPs with feedback into their practice patterns. This last point is very much needed in the private healthcare sector, because unlike in the public sector, where the GPs work in teams, and therefore more natural feedback loops and peer mechanisms exist, without these profiling reports, GPs in the private sector will have no way of knowing how they perform relative to their peers. Another reason why funders might profile GPs is to assess poor performing doctors in order to enable, the, in order to, uh, enable them to, to have a more formal peer review process. Other reasons why is to include doctors in networks of preferred provider, in, in networks of preferred uh, in preferred providers, and also to set different differential levels of pay. Now that I've talked about what GP profiling is and why funders generally do it, I'm briefly going to talk about what is actually measured. So typically the things that are measured are the costs. The costs that are typically measured are the costs that the GP can reasonably be expected to have control over. So these costs are the own consultation costs and the cost of medicines. However, it is important that the cost of medicines, GPs generally don't have the control over the cost of medicines, but they can choose to prescribe generics if available. Other costs that are typically measured are costs associated with radiology and pathology. In the event that the GP refers a patient to a specialist, those specialist consultation costs are usually attributable to the GP. Other dimension that's measured is quality measurement. So quality measurement is more complicated to say the least. Apart from the technical difficulties of defining what good quality care is, Doctors are generally not, uh, funders are generally not best placed to measure this dimension due to the reliance on claims and administrative data instead of clinical and patient outcomes data. However, some measure of quality can be inferred from the procedure and diagnostic data captured in the claims administrative systems. So the quality measures that are typically measured are the preventative measures, the process measures, and the outcome measures. The preventative measures aim to capture the extent to which the GP can prevent the patients from getting ill. So these are typically the various tests and screenings that are, that are provided by a doctor. For example, HPV vaccinations, HIV testing, mammograms, and so forth. The second measure that's really, uh, the process measures aim to capture the extent to which a doctor manages patients with existing, these are usually chronic uh, health conditions. Process measures focus on the on the, on the type of care that is provided to their patients, such as the services, the diagnostic approaches, and the treatments that are ultimately, that are ultimately given to the patients. 
So there's an assumption with this process measures that they translate to improve patient outcomes, which is not generally the case because, for example, frequently testing diabetic patients will not necessarily, will not necessarily lead to an improved outcomes in diabetic patients if the results of these tests are poor and no corrective action is taken. Hmm. So, next I'm going to speak to how profiling is currently done in South Africa. So any profiling methodology must take into account the extent to which a GP can reasonably be expected to have control over the, the resource utilization of treating a patient. So this means, that the first, this means that the first thing to decide on is how to allocate patients to the GP in order to determine which cost and quality measures are actually attributable to that GP. An example of a methodology that is used in practice is to assign patients to a GP if a patient has had three or more consecutive visits to a GP with at least one visit taking place within a 15-month measurement period. An alternative approach is to assign um, costs to a GP based on the weight in which the patient visits the GP. So for example, suppose a patient visits GP A three times, GP B two times, and GP C one time, then 50% of those costs can be attributable to the first GP, 34% to the second GP, and 16% to the third GP. However, this approach ignores the reality where if doctor hopping has occurred, none of the doctors involved would have had an influence on the health status of the patient. So generally, doctor hopping is enabled by poor medical scheme benefit design, where the medical scheme does not impose the patient to nominate a GP and does not impose referral pathways. Another complicated thing with patient allocation is the limited, is, is limited benefits that are available for GP consultations. Generally, GP consultations are funded on an out-of-pocket basis. Therefore, funders only have a partial view of, of the patient's encounters with the GPs. The second step to any profile methodology is to take into account the different types of patients that a GP sees. So some, some GPs might see patients who are generally younger, while others might see patients who are older or more chronically ill. Therefore, in order to compare these GPs on a like-for-like -like basis, a process of risk adjustment has to be carried out. So risk adjustment is a process that attempts to assign patients into homogeneous groups by stratifying them on factors that significantly influence their resource utilization. So this could be the patient's age, the type of condition that they have, the severity of the condition. So this essentially allows like-for-like -like comparisons to be made between the patients that the GP treats. Another important thing to take into account in the risk adjustment process is, well, is how to identify outliers i.e. patients who are severely ill, as they can significantly distort the cost and quality measures that are typically, that a GP can receive. So these are generally cancer patients or patients with severe comorbidities. So there are various methods and caps that are used in practice in order to first identify the outliers and then control for them. These methods can range from simple interquartile range analysis to more complex methods like bootstrap sampling and multicolor methods. An expert that makes comparison across funds is the use of benefit options as a risk adjustment factors. So within the same fund, by not using benefit option as a risk adjustment factor, a doctor who generally sees patients who belong to a scheme with, usually with limited benefits will appear cost-effective relative to a doctor who sees patients who belong to a scheme with rich benefits. Therefore, this factor, therefore using benefit factor is a very important thing to adjust for. However, by using benefit by using benefit options, it makes comparison across schemes very difficult. Just to give you a sense of the difficulty, according to the preliminary reports of the Health Market Inquiry, 
which was released towards the end of last year, there were 270 healthcare plans on offer in the current healthcare system in the country. So, after a patient, after patient has been allocated to a GP and risk adjustment performed, an episode of care is defined for each patient. Essentially, episode of care is a set of services or procedures that are used to treat a clinical condition. This can stretch from the first encounter of a, of a health condition to its completion. An example of a definition of, a, of an episode is when it starts with the first GP consultation and it ends at the sooner of 30 days or the next GP consultation. There are various episode groupers that the funders use. These can stretch from in-house episode groupers, uh, external commercial episode groupers, or a combination of both in-house and commercial episode groupers, depending on the complexity of the profiling methodology. So the purpose of this episode grouper is to be able to predict, is to be able to describe and predict the patient's expected healthcare costs. So therefore, once a patient has been allocated to once patients have been allocated to a GP, risk adjustment performed, episode of care defined, the episode groupers can be used to estimate the patient's expected re uh, healthcare resources, and these can then be compared to the actual cost, and uh, a cost measure can be defined for each GP. Now, I'm going to speak to you the technical difficulties that comes to actually comparing the reports across the different funders. So, for comparison between the different reports, it is important to understand which cost measures are included and how they are calculated. Typically, all finders will include the costs that I mentioned earlier, i.e. the consultation costs, the cost of medicines, the cost of uh, pathology and, uh, and radiology, and the speci specialist consultation costs. However, adjust, however, comparing this cost on a risk-adjusted basis is difficult at best, if not mathematically impossible, due to different patient allocation algorithms I mentioned and due to the different episodes of care, how they're defined, and the risk adjustment processes. So even if funders use the same cost measures, some funders generally produce a single cost measure where, each, uh, where they aggregate the different costs into one measure, and therefore a doctor cannot know what are the driving factors that actually explain the overall cost measure. With regards to quality measurement, uh, even if funders use the same quality measure, similar quality measures, due to the differences in how they define quality measures, it becomes impossible for the GP to compare their performance across the entire report. So, for example, so in situations where a funder might use an example of females who have mammograms, they might include females of different age bands and the time period over which data are considered differs. So, examples, one funder might consider women between the ages of 50 and 64 that had a mammogram in the past year, whereas another funder might consider females between the ages of, say, 55 and 74 that had a mammogram in the past two years, making a comparison, um, making a comparison uh, very difficult. So essentially what you have is that a doctor sees this kind of picture where each funder is kind of reporting the same thing, but because of the differences in the patient allocation algorithms, the differences in the risk adjustment processes, it's impossible for them to actually get a sense of how they perform overall. So essentially what this led to is we had to go back to our clients and admit to them that what they actually wanted to do is impossible. So, cool. That being said, we spoke to finders and they have indicated that they've actually seen improvements in, in the performance matches over time. So basically they attribute these improvements to the profiling reports. However, 
No control study has ever been done to determine whether or not a causal effect exists, and if a causal effect exists, what the magnitude of the effect is. So it is unclear, furthermore, um, if the effect of the improvement is caused by the reports themselves or if there are other underlying factors, and without a study being done, you cannot quantify those effects. So that being said, we thought it best to understand how the doctors actually experience these reports. As I mentioned, like, a doctor will typically receive reports from different funders at different points in time of the year, at different lags, and the, uh, the data is considered at different points in time. So given like, the differences in patient allocation algorithms, differences in the risk adjustment processes, the differences in how they define cost measures, which cost measures are included, how they're actually calculated, it then becomes very impossible for a GP to understand what's happening. And if you actually try to do this, which we did, your mind will explode, like it's just too complex. Second thing is, with regards to the claims administrating systems, like nothing in the, the claims are generally processed according to a practice number. And there's nothing in the practice number that can discern between group practices and solo practices. So therefore, you have a system where doctors who work in group practices are held accountable collectively, and therefore you cannot discern the variation between the doctors within, within the same practice. Another issue with these reports is some of the, so some of the reports, some of the funders have sample sizes that are too small to have credible uh, insights into the data. This further reduces the credibility and the trust that the doctors actually place in these reports. For example, by having these small data sets or bias samples, you cannot discern between randomly occurring variation or consistent variation across the doctors. So work done by Abrahams, Charles, and Naidu indicate that when you have a profiling methodology that is applied to a large data set, the results stabilize very quickly and there's very little movement between the top performing doctors and the bottom performing doctors. However, in reality, the data sets that are used are very small, and we have seen instances where in the same reporting period, a doctor can be ranked well by one funder and ranked poorly by another in the same measurement period. Interestingly enough, we tried to actually figure out how this can work from a statistical point of view. I will save you all the trouble having to do the math, but we did it using simplifying assumptions, and you'll find that if you actually crunch the numbers, the probability of a doctor being ranked well by one funder and poor by another in the same measurement period is just disturbingly high. So the last point is how the reports actually presented to the doctors. So some reports are very short. They can range from 10 pages, some to 30 pages. Some reports are available on the website, and this is very good from a paper-based, paper-saving point of view because you don't have to distribute, distribute reports across the country. But we find that this actually makes it very difficult to digest the data. So from a data consumption point of view, having reports on the website where a doctor has to click through is no, no, not, very, it's not very efficient. Also, even when funders produce reports paper-based, some funders prioritize displaying the results in tables, where some prioritize using infographics. And again, from a data consumption point of view, we found that infographics enable easier consumption of the data. So I'll then end on like, some ideas of how we can improve. So emerging research on alternative approaches to value-based contract contracting indicate that when profiling methodologies, um, so when profiling methodologies are developed together with the funders, there's, there's greater improvements in the doctor performance and there's mutual trust. 
However, these profiling methodologies have been developed, have been developed with provider representative associations. However, we see that there's a disconnect between these associations and the individual doctors, and we're not clear as to why the doctors themselves have not emphasized like, the need for more coherence. So one of the low, well, one of the low hanging fruits that we can try and get to is to have a standardized processes, methodologies, and definitions. A really nice thing to do would be have to have like, a standardized data set where all the funders can share the data sets in order to have a consistent data set to avoid all those pitfalls of biased samples and unrepresentative data. However, before we can get to that, like, one of the easiest things to do will be have to have standardization across the definitions, the processes, and the methodologies. And the last thing is to consider, like, on what level do you think, as an industry, we should compete on? Do you want to compete on the, methodology, on the methodology, or should we compete on actually improving the quality of care by actually considering what to do with information once you have it? Be it engaging in value-based contracting, uh, building provider networks based on value, and alternative reimbursement models. So with that being said, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and we're going to take some questions. Thank you so much, Nirula, for that talk. It's very, very interesting. Um, I'd like to open up the floor for some questions. Sorry, the, the lights are a bit bright, so I can't really see that well. But there are some roaming mics going around. Uh, over there. Thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I was just wondering, has there been any engagement with the General Practitioners Association of South Africa with regards to um, this, profiler, this, this profiling that is happening currently? So I think almost all of the profiling methods that are out there um, have been developed in conjunction with the provider associations. Um, the point that Ntabula was making is that there's a disconnect between those associations and individual doctors on the ground. So for whatever reason, the associations kind of buy into the fact that there are these different methods and this lack of coherence. Um, but when you speak to actual individual doctors, they're the ones who are struggling with the fact that they get these conflicting reports um, and, you know, as in all the ways that Ntabula described, just very difficult to digest. Uh, down in front, yeah. Hi, thank you for the talk. I'm John Boerder from MedScheme. So I'm also involved in FP profiling. Um, I don't disagree with much in the talk. But I think the problem does just come down to fragmentation in the mm. industry. It's not a point we any of us are going to debate. Um, I think what, my question is practically what are you suggesting? I like the, the idea of standardization and all that, but with the commercial considerations of multiple managed care organizations, what are the practical next steps we are suggesting? Yeah, Thanks. Um, I think that the, the sort of closing point around really thinking hard about what the, what the actual commercial dynamics are and what the basis for competition is versus the basis for collaboration is at the crux of it. So I think if one can differentiate conceptually between the measurement um, and how that's done um, versus how the measurement is used, actually the thing to compete on is how you use it. It's how you set up your networks, how you set up your contracts, the relationships that you enter into with, with providers. Um, I, I personally don't think that 
the measurement itself is of commercial value. Um, I, I guess the problem is that at the moment, firms are earning fees for producing the reports, but their funders should, the, the schemes should actually hold them accountable and say, well, we don't actually care if you send reports or if you do fancy maths. Like, it's great that you're clever, but we shouldn't pay a fee for that. What we should pay a fee for is improved healthcare outcomes and improved value in the system. And it's about how you, as an administrator of a managed care organization, organization deliver that. Um, and I don't think it's the measurement that really enables that. So, I mean, I think it's, it's almost a, a game theory type problem. In the end, we all achieve, you know, a, a less improvement in the system because we're communicating in a suboptimal way with the doctors. Um, if we actually collaborated, the overall system would function better and we could compete, compete differently. But it does require funders getting around the table to, to have that conversation. Uh, Joe and then, and then Matt. Uh, up here. Hi. Thank you for the presentation, Jabula. Um, so just following on, on, that, on that thought, is there a role for, for ESSA to develop these standards, to develop a guidance note or anything like that that says, whatever else you do, at least do this so that we can combine? I mean, isn't that exactly what the professional body should be doing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for the talk. I agree with, with mostly everything that you say, including John's uh, you know, remark about standardization. I think one of the biggest challenges, though, is the risk adjustment methodology using mm. the episode grouper. There's no you know, industry-wide episode grouper, and that would require development of an approved industry grouper that everybody would agree to. Um, and, and I just want to hear your thoughts on how we would go about developing that. Would that also be an ASA kind of development, or would that be you know, open sourcing one of the existing ones? Maybe I should ask uh, our con uh, colleague from Insight <laughs> an answer to that question. Uh, there is one available if the industry wants to use. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I'm not the CEO of Insight, so I mean, I'll have to, I'll have to ask Barry and Christoph if they're willing to share it for free. But the, I think, the, I mean, the point applies, I think, to multiple of the statistical tools that we use in the healthcare industry. So. Um, episode groupers, DRGs, you know, all of those sorts of statistical tools. It's not good for the market to have a proliferation of, of these things. Um, and it makes, it makes communication difficult. I mean, if you take the DRG example um, in hospital and funder negotiations, um, if each party is using a different DRG, um, it, you know, it, for them to have the same view on uh, efficiency and performance and all of that sort of thing, you just kind of waste negotiating time getting to uh, a, a sort of joint view of performance um, as opposed to then being able to say, okay, this is the performance based on the DRG that both parties have used. Can we now talk about, you know, what that means in terms of price and um, other bases of, of contracting? Um, but it is, a, it is a tricky thing because there is, I guess, there's IP and commercial value sitting inside those groupers. Um, and yeah, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. But I mean, I mean, I think the thing is not to maybe throw the baby out of the bathwater um, and to say, well, if we could standardize some, some of the components and maybe not all of them, we would already be making things easier for the doctors. I mean, just simple things like frequency and lag, um, you know, mm -hmm. that the reports, some, some are, you know, th uh, uh, rolling periods, some are quarters, some are annual. Like if you just fix that, you'd already simplify the process. Thanks, guys, for the presentation.
Um, yeah. Uh, my question is just if we did develop something that's standardized and used across all uh, funders, um, what is the market's perception on this in terms of how would this be received by providers as well as, I mean, how do you know, your patients, I mean, does that really influence their choice? Um, I know they often feel that they're restricted and why do I need to choose? So how would the market, you know, the wider environment accept something if ACID did develop it? Um, yeah, I think it's very useful to think through each of those stakeholders. Um, I mean, our sense from the conversations with GPs is that they would welcome the simplification. Um, at the moment, I mean, there's those questions that around what affects patients in terms of, you know, GP allocation and um, or nomination and referral pathways. I mean, I, I think you could do the standardization of the profiling without having to enforce that. Um, and, I, I mean, at the moment, you know, I think one of the sort of HMI criticisms of the industry is that we're doing very little in terms of reporting things like cost and quality to consumers. And if you have to think about taking this kind of proliferation and fragmentation and start to think about, okay, how do we start to communicate things to consumers, you, you can't do that in this situation. So I think it would actually strengthen the industry's ability to start to engage with consumers and empower consumers to make decisions. Hi, so I have a few questions. I guess one of the recommendations from the HMI was set to set up the supply side regulator and stuff like that. Would something like this also be needed for more on the medical scheme side for standardization? So does this sit with the CMS or some other kind of quality uh, type of regulator to bring all the parties together? Because I don't see parties uh, really giving up millions of IP. Um, the other question I had was just on the medical scheme design, you said that doctor hopping was caused by poor medical scheme design. Does that mean that consumers should not have choice and we should hard fix, you must go to this GP? Uh, and how do you deal with that trade-off? Because I'm, from a scheme perspective, I do work for Discovery, we would love to have patient, doctor, it just simplifies the world, but people want choice. People, if you don't like this doctor or this doctor has a better skill in diabetes or something and you want to transfer it to doctors. I don't think it's as simple as, oh no, the medical scheme must just put in the thing. So those are my two questions around that. Um, so I think those two things, so um, allocating uh, or having uh, what's called uh, GP nominations um, and uh, those referral pathways in place, um, I think are, are well-known techniques in, in health system design and public health around the world. Um, they, it doesn't necessarily mean no choice because the patient can choose the doctor in the first place and you can have mechanisms in place for switching, um, either on a change of circumstances or once a year or whatever it is. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're locked to the doctor for life, but it does stop the GP hopping and, and the, the GP hopping is linked to lots of negative outcomes in the system. So firstly, that there isn't somebody who's actually coordinating the care of the patient. Um, and then we end up paying managed care companies to do that instead of just getting GPs to do what they're supposed to do. Um, and the other is also around um, things like um, addiction and polypharmacy and all of those sorts of things. Um, often the reasons that patients are GP hopping is because they're farming for scripts and all of those sorts of things. So there are two areas where you can improve health, health outcomes 
quite rapidly. Um, I think the resistance to it in the market is a first mover problem. Um, that you know you would immediately sort of you know for scheme uh, rolled that out across the board that they would be, be less attractive than their, than their competitors. Um, I think if that shift in thinking sort of becomes more widespread, then that issue dissipates somewhat. Also, as the cost pressure increases, right? I think we're at, we're at a point where the cost of cover is so expensive and the buy downs from expensive options to cheap options is so prevalent um, that we really do have to start thinking about actually quite simple mechanisms for, for controlling costs. Um, and schemes like GEMS who have done it, uh, have done it extremely successfully um, with uh, very demonstrable uh, savings in, in claims. And I, just to add that, I think the, the profiling side is such an important part to, to get effective triage, so that if you're using GPs as a gatekeeper, that you're using the right GPs, and there is that proper analysis of them. Obviously, it needs the, an effective methodology, uh, but the one goes hand in hand with the other if it's done effectively. Right. Weinand um, Nietlang, Momentum. Are we not solving the wrong problem? So, at the moment, we're talking about third parties imposing a measurement system on a whole industry and obviously there's some resistance. We all know that the best operating model for healthcare delivery is multidisciplinary teams. Should we not rather be finding ways to promote and work with the provider to get us to that kind of delivery system? You mentioned the health market inquiry. They also actually brought this up and mm -hmm. said it's not prevalent and there are two main obstacles to the provider industry. The one being the provider regulator and the other one being the funding industry. Surely there's a role for us to play in partnering with providers and helping them to deliver things the right way, which they already know they should be doing. We can always impose measurements and um, remuneration models on top of that, but the core problem is the way that healthcare is being delivered. Oh, it's like so many things to talk about there. Um, we could be here all day. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I agree with you, and I think the, you know, really the place we sort of want to be able to leapfrog to is the value-based contracting, value-based um, service delivery models. Um, and I think a lot of the problems that we see in the, in the profiling area um, are actually kind of signals of the, the ways in which we don't think about these things properly. Um, and one of the other um, things that we we're involved in um, is a, is a uh, perceived as a shareholding in a value-based contracting business called Aligned that's developed a palliative care contract. Um, and the experience there around quality measurement was to, you know, the, the way we do, I mean, I think it's, this is a lot of the fault lies with us as actuaries. The way that we typically do quality measurement is we say, what data points do we have available in our claims data? And then which of those can we sort of draw a dotted line between that and some sort of quality metric? And then we'll use those to measure quality. And what we did there is we flipped that around completely and we sat down with the doctors and we said, okay, Let's talk about what does good quality look like in, your, in this type of care that you're delivering. Um, and not just from your perspective as a doctor. So don't tell me if I do this as a doctor, then that's good care. Tell me about what matters for the patient in and of itself. 
and then let's, let's agree a set of quality outcomes, and then from those outcomes, let's think about what metrics would make sense, and then let's think about cool new ways to collect that data um, so that we can actually measure quality in a meaningful way. Um, and I think if you look at the quality piece of, prof of the profiling uh, systems out there, um, it's really flawed. Um, and it is also, it, it raises quite a big sort of philosophical question around whether you think of GPs managing sort of an entire population's health with a, a mix of different types of patients in there, or whether we should actually be measuring them with specific metrics for specific subpopulations. So, you know, it's a different set of metrics for how they manage their really like multi-comorbid uh, complex patients versus their geriatric patients versus their pediatric patients, you know, so maybe we should be actually thinking about uh, metrics that make more, cl more clinical sense um, because they're kind of subdivided in a different way. Um, but, I, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think if we shifted our mindset to be much more focused on um, that kind of value mindset and we work backwards from there, we would end up with a different solution. Um, Sarah Bennett from MedScheme. Jabalu, thank you very much for a very enlightening talk and well done. Thank you. Um, I thought that one of the things you said was very profound and that is that, um, that we can't just be, we don't just want the providers to be measuring the outcomes, we want them to be improving the outcomes. Yes. Um, so, and I think that we have made it into a bit of a box ticking exercise where we might be measuring HbA1c five times a year but it's still 10% each time and we're not actually improving outcomes. Um, then the second comment I wanted to make is um, what I've found very enlightening is engaging directly with um, GPs, with providers, and they actually have the, the um, amazing insights to share. And um, one doctor in particular I've been engaging with um, is going to be sharing the podium with me tomorrow. Um, so I encourage you to attend the session at 2.15 2 in this venue. And, um, and one of the doctors we've been working with is Dr. Neville. And um, yeah, I'd like to challenge others in the profession to engage directly with doctors, to hear their viewpoints, to hear their ideas. And e I've even inspired people in my team to have these conversations with their GPs when they go, for whatever reason, they have having conversations about outcomes and, and about the, the work that we're doing. So um, yeah, those are my two comments. Thanks again. Um, so I just wanted, yeah, thank you, Sarah, for that. I just wanted to comment briefly. So um, as a result of this project, what we ended up doing with the client was saying, you know, instead of relying on these funder reports to improve, because they were really quality improvement focused, that's what they wanted to do. How do we improve mm. the quality of care that we provide? So instead of relying on the funder reports, how could we leverage their own data to help improve? And what, what was, has been really powerful with them is to actually zoom in on something quite detailed quite specific, um, and then to really kind of focus around getting everybody across the business up to a certain level. So the, the thing we worked on with them was around antibiotic uh, prescriptions. So, you know, looking for variations in how their doctors were prescribing, um, and then they could then engage from a clinical perspective through their clinical governance structures to, to try and change those, those behaviors. Um, but there's something about that specificity um, which is very powerful, as opposed to a long list of metrics, um, which make it very difficult. If each of, and you know, it's hard for a doctor to know 
if there are 100 metrics and each of them you know, kind of count 1%, um, you know, how do they actually meaningfully change their score? What do they really have to do in the real world? Hi, it's uh, Tasso Tofus from Momentum Health Solutions. Um, thanks a lot for your presentation, Jabula. I thought it was very interesting. You raised some interesting points. Um, my question is more around um, the overall um, outcome of your um, uh, talk or, or research. Did, did you find that, I mean, reading the title of, of the paper, did you find that overall, according to your, your findings, profiling doesn't like, achieve um, the desired outcomes, or did you find it was a, a bit of a mixed bag? Did you find sometimes it um, showed interesting things, other times it was um, useless or always useless? So what was the overall kind of um, outcome? Um, so, so, I mean, we were working with a very specific set of doctors, and in, in their world it wasn't having an impact. It was much more the things that they were doing themselves. Um, and I think, uh, uh, I think it's hard without doing a, a proper study to say for sure what the impact is. I think our point is just that it's, we can't really make claims that it is having an impact. Um, because we haven't actually assessed the, the kind of worth of it. And our qualitative experience from the doctors is that it's very difficult for them to go from those reports to translate that back into their, like what they're actually doing from a day-to-day -day perspective. I think some of the mechanisms attached to profiling does have an impact. So, for example, for a very poor-performing doctor, there will often be a peer intervention, um, and I think that can be that can be helpful. And I think for some doctors, just having you know, if they're consistently scoring poorly, it can have an impact to say, "Oh my goodness, I had no idea it was so bad." So, I don't think we're saying that it has no impact at, at all, but I think we have to be very careful as an industry to sort of overstate the the impact of of that. And I think we have to be quite honest about what it is that we're trying to achieve. You know, with it. Um, I mean, one of the one of the biggest uh, things that in the conversations with the doctors that came up was that um, you know not all funders are using cost and quality metrics. Um, so they 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 find it really frustrating that if they are actually you know spending some money to improve outcomes and to actually stop a patient from like ending up in hospital, for example, and producing better quality care, that that doesn't get recognised in the system. So it's, you know, there are all of these sorts of things around how we what we signalling to them, what we think is important. Um, and, and just really to put that behavioral lens on. Sorry, just, just on that. Uh, did you guys um, get from, just from your quali qualitative interactions with the, the providers, whether they respond to what the funders are doing if they, if they don't kind of adhere to like a, a high enough score? So the financial impact, the administrative burden, all of that, were they very aware of like that part of it? No, they're very aware of it, and I think I think the the, the consequence is that it's actually it's quite a negative experience for them. So they see that they're exposed to financial risk and all of these things, but quite frustrated in the sense that they don't know how to you know how to really unlock what's being said and or to interpret it. And there are some doctors who are I guess more numerical and more sort of interested in the statistics who will engage with it. But for the sort of average doctor, um, it's a frustrating situation to feel that you're being subjected to something where you have very little um, understanding or control. I suppose that's, that speaks a little bit to the ownership of like, get, getting providers own, like, owning the, like, what they're, they're being evaluated on uh, so that they understand it, um, actually how to improve, and then they have the, the, the information at hand to improve the outputs, I suppose. And something that they care about. Hmm. Uh, Shaboni. 
Um, so, so a lot of this GP profiling is obviously based on sort of a, a line level scan through fee-for-service claims data, right? So, so suppose we do move into a more value-based key system away from fee-for-service, right? And now you don't have that data to do episode grouping to calculate costs. What needs to change in the way the practices are run to improve the system if we're going through that kind of change? Sure, that's a very good question. Um, I think it comes back to that, that question of thinking about new ways of collecting data. Um, so I think, I mean, because we've built an entire industry that's kind of dependent on fee-for-service data, it's quite scary to think about, oh, what would we do, you know, if that wasn't there. Um, so I'm just going to give a couple of examples of the things we learned from the palliative care experience. Um, so one of the things that we've done there is um, partnered with a tech platform um, which enables multidisciplinary teamwork for healthcare providers. So it's a communication platform for healthcare providers to talk to each other in a puppy compliant way. Um, but what that actually allows is for the managed care organization to have a, at least a partial view of that conversation. And there are a whole bunch of quality metrics that you can actually start to pull off those conversations. So you can require them to pin certain things. You know, so for example, for palliative care, one of the things you want them to do is to provide the family with an after-hours emergency solution so the patient doesn't get rushed to an ER unit and then get admitted. Um, so we just ask them to take a photograph, you know, to create a fridge magnet with uh, after-hours details, and then just take a photograph of it and upload it onto the chat that they had set up for the patient. Um, and then we know that that's been done and it's a good process measure. It's a, it's a good kind of proxy metric. Um, so that's just one example. Um, but, um, you know, it, it just requires a little bit of creative thinking and going back to the, the drawing board. Um, but, I mean, the, 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 the huge difference, I think, with the value-based approach is that you really focus hard on giving that autonomy and responsibility back to the healthcare providers. Um, and then so much of the responsibility doesn't sit with the funders. It actually shifts back to the to the, the people at the front line. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, so I suppose I have a more general comment than a question. I think it's important to remember that the profiles in and of themselves are just a tool. They're not what we're expecting to effect change. So, I mean, the profiles we do, we then flag outliers at both the top and the bottom end, and those providers go through peer profiling. Mm -hmm. So where they have another doctor talking to a doctor on a level that the doctors understand. Because let's be honest, most of us are not medically minded, and we don't speak the same language as the doctors. So then we have doctors talking to doctors, and when you go back and look at those practices that have been peer-reviewed, you definitely see an improvement in the way that care is given. So the physical profiles in and of themselves are just a tool. They're not what's going to cause the change. It's the, it's the insights that you can get from the profiles that are going to effect change, and you do that by engaging the doctors. I mean, during a typical week, I'm engaging with four or five doctors on the profiles that, that we're producing. What goes into them, why they matter, why they don't, um, why the, they've been scored the way that they've been scored. So that interaction is a massive part of the profiles themselves. 
Yes, agreed. And, and, and I mean, that's why I think that it's, we shouldn't be competing on like actually doing the measurement, but on how we use the measurement and all of those interactions that come from that. So just another comment on that, and I suppose it refers to Andre's point as well, um, that the, the peer review and the engaging with the doctors also allows for the identifying of those providers that are the role models that you can, you can try and emulate. Um, a lot of the, the research that, that I've done previously into profiling has spoken to the fact that ultimately there are inherent um, uh, uh, models for particular GPs that are better than others. Um, and gra gravitating those that most resonate with those models to a gold standard um, has, has seen a lot of success in, in, in a lot of industries. Um, yes, um, it strikes me that it might be that we're working on our own and not looking at the rest of the world. I mean, you know, America's got the biggest fee-for-service um, industry and they've been trying to manage healthcare for how long? 40 years? And then there are other countries where there are fee-for-service and then you've got countries where there's no fee-for-service and I'm thinking of the UK. Um, have you looked at what they do? How they, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I mean a lot of these methodologies uh, originated from, from the US um, and uh, I actually it, um, had lunch with somebody yesterday um, who uh, runs an organization called Leapfrog to Value, who's US-based, but is working around the world through the big donors and big agencies, because he's so frustrated to see in low and middle income countries us replicating the mistakes that have been made elsewhere in the world. And that actually we, should just, we, could, we could actually just skip all of this and move to where things are now in the US, which is um, very much the value-based uh, approach. Hi, um, I'm Shirley Colley from Discovery. Um, I think just given the feedback and the discussion, um, the title in of itself is, is quite a strong title um, in terms of the paper. Um, just to kind of jump back to that choice of title, um, is there any kind of measurement or um, analysis that you've done in terms of making that statement of not affecting change or is it more around um, the point of you think it could be done better if there was better coordination in the industry? Just to clarify that. Thanks Shirley. Um, no, I mean, I think the, our qualitative experience, so not an analytical experience, right, because I think one would have to engage very broadly with doctors across uh, to, get, to get that kind of statistical view, um, is, is that it, it is much less effectual given the, I mean, to given the spend, given the effort that's put into it, um, and, and what it actually is, how it's experienced by doctors on the ground, mm -hmm. um, that that is a very suboptimal situation. So we're not saying that it has no effect at all. And as I say, on the, you know, at the extremes, the very poor doctors, all of those sorts of things, there, there are definitely mechanisms that, um, that, that have an impact. But by and large, for the average doctor receiving uh, multiple reports, often conflicting, um, th that doesn't translate into, and we, and we have no idea what the counterfactual is, right? So just because there have been small incremental changes in some of these proxy measures that we use, so, oh great, you know, people are doing more uh, diabetic tests, like fantastic. Um, it, it, you know, we don't know what the counterfactual is. We don't know 
what massive improvements in quality we could have achieved if we were communicating with them in a way that was standardized and that was in a way that they could more easily translate that back into how do they actually improve their, their practices. And then just a second statement around that often with different profiles you may be getting different conclusions um, and it can arise from you know the different definitions of the measures, but within the same profile, um, you've spoken about you could profile the geriatric population different to the pediatric population and the diabetic population different to the cardiac population. It is very possible that you get differing conclusions for different cohorts of patients for very valid reasons. And having conflicting results, um, while it is challenging to intellectually get your head around, um, I think the point of good medicine versus bad medicine, versus bad medicine it's, it's not a black and white um, spectrum. Um, so conflicting conclusions for different cohorts of patients in of itself doesn't necessarily point to an error um, in terms of the measurement. So I think that's just another statement. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, I, I agree with you. The problem is that the doctors don't know how to interpret that. So, you know, the, at the moment they're not getting sub-reports for different subpopulations. They're getting, you know, reports from different funders, but each funder is seeing a different slice of their, you know, so for the doctor to wrap their head around, oh, okay, I look worse on funder B because I'm not doing as good, at, you know, there are more cardiac, cardiac patients in funder B's pool and I'm not doing as good a job on cardiac patients. It's very difficult for them to make that leap. Um, and, you know, no one's helping them um, sit down and look at those reports side by side and say, okay, this is why you're getting conflicting reports. They're having to figure that out them, themselves. And they often just get stuck at the point of read. I mean, you know, we came at it as technical people, right, and read the reports from a user perspective. Um, it's really, because people have tried to summarize quite quickly the way they've done patient allocation and risk adjustment and all of that, it is highly technical and almost impossible for a layperson to understand what's being said to them. Yeah, any other questions? Uh, Rosa. Hi, thanks guys. That was a um, great presentation. Well done, Angela, and, um, and thanks for the paper. Um, I guess when I read the paper, I was hoping for the numbers, and, um, and it sounds to me from the, from the discussion here today that there's actually a lot of really good and detailed work that's, that's going on, so I think there is an opportunity to try and, and, and bring it together. Um, but I guess it is, as, as Shirley says, it's not quite so, so, so black and white. And I think we need to be careful about, you know, presentationally how this is communicated. I mean, I would hate for this to go out there as saying, well, the actuaries are discussing the flaws in the methodology for profiling doctors, and now, you know, the little bit of value is, 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 is eroded. So I think we do certainly need to find ways to work together, but also um, to recognize that there is this kind of innovation and, and development. And there is also the context of the environment that we're working in, that um, you know, in the in the fee-for-service space, and with some of the um, recommendations that the um, HMI has made about promoting quality outcomes, this is actually part of the solution rather than rather than part of the problem. So perhaps, I mean, just to to build on that suggestion of um, 
of maybe having some kind of, I, I, I'm not sure we can leap to guidance at this point, but perhaps to have some kind of, of sharing of, of ideas, and particularly as we, as we do engage as a profession in some of the recommendations of the, of the health market inquiry and what we as a profession can contribute to, um, to building those kind of better measures of, and, and, and driving towards quality outcomes and assisting the stakeholders in terms of, of the, the technical part. And I guess one of the other points, um, to go to your point of multidisciplinary um, teams, um, Siobhan is also in this area, that we as, as actuaries need to be working um, in, in multidisciplinary teams here in terms of making sure that we're understanding the, the data as well. Hi, Suzette from Messi. Um, my question is with regards to provider profiling, have you looked at specialists as well, or specifically family practitioners? Mm. Um, the reason I ask is in the, if you look at a specialist in terms of your disease type, you already have a little bit more homogeneity first. Um, and, and also secondly, just from independent analyses there, it affects especially where the um, outlier or the driving doctor is responsible for the hospital admission. Um, you know, the scale's quite bigger, so whether you've, you've looked at, um, at specialists. Um, we haven't, and I mean, yeah, so you're right about some of those points. The, the flip side to that is the statistical credibility and the volumes. So I think you run, in a way, a greater risk with specialists of fragmenting the market. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, just zooming out, and I'm not a healthcare specialist or healthcare actuary, but when I read your topic uh, title and you're talking about the behavioral aspects of, of these reports, what I thought of was um, how, how do doctors receive this judgment from the actuarial profession that is delivered from high on above? Um, and, and like, as a, in a behavioral way, how does a doctor react to being told, you know, even if they understood the report of the report was simplified to the point, where rating was understandable, how frustrating would it be if the Medical Schemes Council sent you a report saying, Shivani, you have 52% actuary this, this year. <laughs> and, and then when you dig down, it's like, it's because you spend so many hours at work and produce so many pages of, of report writing, you know, that's, that's our measurements. And, and I wonder how, how well they, you know, that, that resentment of being judged on what the arbitrary metrics um, and, and then our, is relating that to how do we get doctors re actually reflect on health outcomes, outcomes specifically, like outcomes are the things that are missing from this. Um, I found my interactions with doctors and healthcare professionals to be very, very episodic, very small. So as soon as I've gone away, I disappear until I come back, in which case it didn't work, or I don't come back, in which case it did. And it often doesn't, right? It's often like, oh, well, I'm a bit better. I'm just going to, you know, so, so that's, that doctor following through, that, that idea of a, of a doctor being a, somebody who actually cares about your recovery as opposed to whether the treatment was administered. Um, I don't know how to change that mindset, but it's hard to get that from another profession, judging. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think it, it relates back to the point that was made earlier about um, actually the way in which they're engaged in the first place to sort of have a joint sense of ownership over what is measured, um, so that at least when it arrives, it feels like something that you agreed to and believe in. Um, I think having something imposed on them 
um, is, is just, it's not a good starting point for building a relationship. And I think points to a lot of the, the dynamics in the industry between funders and providers. There's an enormous amount of distrust um, and they're very much seen as you know, working against each other as opposed to kind of working together for the, the best interests of the patient and the, and the consumer. Um, your question about getting doctors to care about you beyond the episode, I think is very much one about how they're reimbursed and how they're incentivized, um, which, is a, which is again that sort of value-based contracting idea um, of you know, how do you actually pay them, not just fee-for-service pays them for doing more, pays them for volume, how do you actually pay them for producing good healthcare outcomes? Um, and it is, it is, it's not easy, and it's uh, particularly not easy in an environment where fee-for-service is very entrenched. It's, it's quite a difficult system for people to move away from, um, but it is certainly something that we should be trying to do. So, and just uh, one, more, one more comment on the first part of, you know, what happens if we as actuaries were, I think it's different in healthcare because of the third-party payer problem. So it's the, the funders are paying for the healthcare, but the providers are, are providing that healthcare to, to patients. Um, so someone needs to monitor them, um, and doctors uh, can't be employed by hospitals, so uh, there needs to be that mechanism for there to be accountability and review uh, to make sure that they're providing uh, a scarce resource effectively, and it needs to come from somewhere. So it is, it is the nuances of the healthcare system don't, uh, don't are, are complex in that way, and it takes a little bit of a different approach. Uh, Matt. Yes, just one more question from me. Um, going back to your point, Shivani, on having to infer you know, some, some metrics from the administrative claims data that we have, your experience with the palliative care providers of providing this additional clinical data, do you think doctors would be willing to provide us with additional clinical data to make these profiles even more accurate? There is a, a bit of a trust issue between the funders and the providers. Um, and then also, what kind of mechanism? Do we build an electronic health record to collect all of these things, or how do we go about collecting the clinical data that we don't routinely get as part of our administrative claims data? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think trust is a huge part of it. Um, a lot of the work that we did with the palliative care, I think we were coming at it from quite a neutral position, so neither a funder nor a provider, but somebody trying to craft a fair value-based contract in the middle, that kind of trying to strike a balance between those perspectives. Um, so an enormous amount of relationship building and trust building. Um, that process in, in some ways is almost more important than like where you end up. Um, so I think that the trust is a huge part of it. Um, but our experience is if you can get that right, then there is, there's definitely a, a willingness to share data if they, if they can believe that it will be used in a way that is, is fair. Um, and then in terms of, I mean, I think it relates to sort of broader discussions around thinking about data um, and being able to, you know, be able to pull data from, from a variety of sources into a single place as opposed to, you know, having to kind of lock down the ways in which we, we get data. Um, I mean, an electronic health record is, um, that contains clinical as well as financial, financial information, I think takes you a, a long, long way. Um, but, I mean, I feel very strongly about things like patient-reported outcomes, um, and you need a different mechanism for, for collecting that. Um, but that is, that's an area um, where, you know, just being able to, to uh, bring the patient voice into the system more clearly, I think is a very powerful source of information. Uh, time for one more question. Sorry, this, um, this latest question triggered off something. Yeah, to what extent do the medical profession see actuaries working in the healthcare field as only working for funders? 
Uh, you know, in the insurance industry, we've had the same problem for many years, pension fund industry, same problem. And to what extent can society, the actual society do something to, you know, if that's the view, to change that view? Um, I, think, I think that is shifting. Um, I think that we started out um, from a sort of healthcare practice point of view very much on the funder side, if you go back sort of 20 years or so, 20 or 30 years. Um, but that has shifted over time. Um, and I mean, particularly if you look at the hospital groups, they all have um, actuaries on, on board. Um, it's obviously more difficult for the smaller provider associations and kind of more, you know, uh, individual groupings. Um, but that balance uh, across funder and provider, I think, has, has shifted over time. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, I'm going to wrap things up there. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the, the incredible engagement um, and, the, and the questions. Um, and I just think, just to, to sum up, it's, it's another example um, of how the actuarial pro uh, profession can come together um, on, a, on a very technical and a profound way to, to improve um, the, the private healthcare industry. And that, that idea of working together um, particularly in a complex environment like healthcare, um, is so important. Uh, so, one more time, uh, and a, a round of applause for Ndebula. Uh, and thank you very much. That concludes the session.